Welcome to our February Empower Women podcast episode, Looking Forward, Real Estate Trends in 2023. This month, we were joined by Donna Marcantonio, real estate agent with the Petrowski Jones Group. In this episode, Donna discussed five emerging trends that we expect for 2023 and beyond. She also talked about issues around low inventory and how that impacts housing affordability, how market fundamentals are normalizing as some markets weaken due to diminishing pandemic tailwinds, and the potential for a cyclical economic downturn. She also looked at how the pandemic forced structural shifts in how and where we live, work, and recreate in ways that seem destined to endure. Enjoy. But I'm going to go ahead and um, introduce uh, Donna uh, Mark Antonio. Correct me if I'm mispronouncing your name, please, Donna. <laughs> um, who is a real estate agent um, with Petrowski Jones Group, and um, she works with all different types of clients, and she. Um, is prepared to give us her insight on the real estate market and what's going on um, this year, some of the things to think about um, if you are in a position where you're going to be doing a real estate transaction. Um, Donna's a great resource, so I encourage everybody to um, ask questions. As a reminder, our Empower Women um, events are to help educate and support um, each other. So we really like to encourage people to take advantage of the resources we have as a group. So if you do have questions, please um, speak up. Thank you so much, Betsy. So thank you. I'm happy to be here um, and sort of give some insight into this real estate market, uh, which was pretty consistent for a number of years. And recently, uh, the past, since last June and last spring has been kind of volatile. So, um, uh, but I'm gonna, I presented, I'm gonna present like a kind of slideshow of different trends and things that we're watching and thinking about in the industry. And I think um, also just to, let you know, I'm thinking about the real estate industry collectively speaking. So um, commercial real estate and residential and multifamilies, they're very intertwined um, markets and they impact each other tremendously. Um, so I'm going to start, but please, you can interrupt me if you have any questions as well. Um, I'm going to minimize this. Okay, great. Um, so so this is kind of just um, what we're thinking about in the industry right now. So I, I called it emerging trends in 2023. So I apologize. So the, the first thing is we're going to kind of look at the agenda, which is taking the long view, um, five emerging trends. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the greater Boston area specifically, a year in review. And then I'm going to just kind of give you this we're really thinking about the current debate is all around interest rates and sort of what's happening um, with inflation as it relates to interest rates. Um, so that's kind of a large part of what we're watching. Um, so this is sort of taking the long view, five emerging trends. Um, normalizing. So I would say um, 
let's say the pandemic, as you can imagine, uh, created a lot of disruption in the market. And in 2021, as we were coming a little bit out of the pandemic, there was uh, tailwinds. And so the market in 2021 was extremely busy um, and a lot of uh, multiple offer scenarios, a lot of things going above asking. And so uh, starting with the Fed rate increase in uh, last spring, the end of last spring, we've come into what we feel like is a correction. And so we're thinking about that as normalizing. And then uh, the second part is really about like how we've shifted a little bit in the pandemic. Um, and then too much for too many is really about the cost of housing and how it's dramatically increased. Um, finding a higher purpose has to do with thinking about repurposing buildings and how to create more housing stock. And then one of the key concerns in the real estate industry is climate change um, and how the built environment is really impacting climate change. It's something a lot of people are very in the industry are really concerned about and think about a lot. Um, so in terms of normalizing, um, so uh, interest rates, um, let's see, with interest rates headed higher for longer, the risk of a deeper full-fledged recession is rising. Um, and the, there's a growing consensus of economists that that low interest rate environment that we had for so long is kind of a thing of the past. Um, and in the industry, we feel like it's a good thing to have rates become more normalized um, and calm everything down. Um, so the mood is sort of like cautious optimism. Um, and I think people feel like we will be able to ride out um, anything, you know, in terms of a recession. Um, and we feel like in 2024, we're going to really return to a, a period of sustained growth and strong returns. Um, so one commercial real estate economist went so far as to say, I think we're going into what I would say is a healthy down cycle. It's a cleansing um, Schrumpterian idea that every so often economies need to cleanse and wash out like kind of like uh, cycles or behaviors that were unsustainable. And we felt like as we were watching this kind of fervor continue, we thought, when is this going to end in the industry? So um, the property market fundamentals are normalizing as some markets weaken due to diminishing pandemic tailwinds and the potential for a cyclical economic downturn. Um, let's see, defying just about every prediction voiced during the uncertain days of the, of the COVID lockdown, uh, the commercial property markets actually embarked on a remarkable run with the strongest returns in rent growth and a uh, price appreciation ever recorded. So there was, if you remember during the pandemic, there was so much commercial real estate where workers were no longer going in to work and the office. And so there was a lot of concern about um, a lot of these buildings remaining vacant. Um, so now more than two years later, property investors and managers are learning um, that growth and profits eventually fall back to earth and a, revers a revers reversion to the mean or simply put like a normalizing. Um, home sales, both new and existing, 
had an incredible 12-year run since bottoming out in the summer of 2010 after the great mortgage meltdown in 2008 um, until the Fed started raising interest rates in the spring of 2022. Uh, like the end of May, early June, things really started to slow down. Um, new home prices peaked in April of 2022, um, while prices of existing homes peaked in June after appreciation started to slow with the rise of mortgage rates. And then after a decade of lower for longer, the Fed is finally normalizing interest rates closer to historic levels, uh, which in the industry we feel like is a really good thing. Um, this gives you kind of like important issues for real estate in 2023. You can see that um, I would say some of the most important, one of the most important thing is construction labor costs. People are very concerned with um, the supply chain issues are still impacting construction and material costs. And I think that's a major concern for housing starts and new building. So um, the uh, I would say a close second is the interest rates and the cost of capital. Like how much does it cost you know, to borrow money to purchase. So those are kind of the some of the major concerns that we're thinking about in the in the market, as as well as availability of qualified labor. Um, so those are some of the major things. Um, still, we feel like after the post, you know, kind of like post pandemic, things really shifted, and um, even as property markets begin to normalize in many ways after some of the disruptions in the past few years, um, we won't be resuming our former lives in some key respects. The pandemic forced structural shifts in how and where we live, work, and recreate in ways that we feel like we'll never go back to the um, way that it was pre-pandemic. Uh, the pandemic changed how we think about and how we use space and people are looking to really achieve their lifestyle choices more quickly. Um, I think it will be interesting uh, to see what happens as we get a little bit farther along post-pandemic, but um, there's people are less focused on their employer and more focused on their personal lifestyle. And it's changing how people think about single family residences and also rentals and apartments and the choices they're making have been dramatically impacted. Um, I would say no dynamic touches more property sectors and markets than how many of us will finally relocate from our home office back to the company workplace and how often. Uh, we don't know if it's gonna be like a hybrid work from home situation moving forward for the next decade or sort of how will that play out? So the question is like, will workers return? And we feel like there's no consensus at the moment. We're in a fact-finding mode. The contours of the decision are familiar to us, like employer demands are um, for control and building culture. The need for mentoring and collaboration and workers' fear of missing out will translate into more in-office work over time. But those factors will be weighed against the potential to save on occupancy costs, um, transportation costs, and uh, especially worker demand for more location flexibility. Um, there's a made, there's been just this incredible shift in consumer behavior, and we aren't sure exactly how that will play out yet. 
Um, so I put as one economist summar summarize, mixing Greek mythology and biblical references, it's probably really more of an odyssey as opposed to an exodus. Uh, we don't know what will happen, what the new norm will look like in terms of housing. And we just have to kind of keep uh, fluctuating and watching as things evolve. Um, one of the pandemic outcomes of the pandemic has been a shift towards multi-generational homes uh, defined by the National Association of Realtors as homes where families live under the same roof with grandparents, adult children, or other extended family members. The purchase of these types of homes peaked during the pandemic in 2020 as families gathered during the pandemic with 15% of buyers purchasing multi-generational homes. Um, this has been very fascinating for us. We've even sold properties. Uh, one thing that was fascinating, we sold a bed and breakfast to uh, one family that had four generations who bought an old bed and breakfast in Cambridge uh, that went uh, out of business because of the pandemic. So that was a fascinating sale we did. Um, while reasons for purchasing properties with family members vary case by case, um, NAR's report found the majority of first-time buyers who purchased multi-generational homes did so because of cost savings and for the purpose of affording affordability. Um, a larger home, you know, with multiple incomes was more affordable, and also just things like utilities and uh, kind of the carrying costs of the home became a much better um, investment. People could buy bigger places; they had more space. And um, it was fascinating to kind of watch this trend pick up. Um, for repeat buyers, um, on the other hand, they were more likely to engage in multi-general buying for health reasons or to take care of aging relatives. Um, as we see the transition of the large baby boomer generation as we age into a retirement, it will be interesting to see if they move in with millennials and their Gen Z children or if they stay in their own homes. The trend of multi-generational buying appears to be firmly established and one that could expand into the future. I put a chart here. Um, so reasons to purchase a multi-generational home um, with first-time buyers with the green line and repeat buyers. Uh, one of the major things was they wanted a larger home, multiple incomes could afford together. Um, so it had a lot to do with affordability cost savings, and then secondarily uh, had to do with kind of aging relatives and things like that. So um, this is kind of like the scope of what people are thinking about. And then one of the other major issues, which I'm sure you've heard about in the news, is housing affordability. Um, it has fallen to its lowest level in over 30 years. Uh, prices and rents have soared relative to incomes, spiraling mortgage rates have pushed the homeownership bar further out of reach for a growing share of households. And there's this chronic undersupply of housing, which is the result of multiple things. Um, one is government policies that limit new supply or increase construction costs. And um, sort of all of this is exacerbated by the labor shortage. NIMBYisms are sort of these uh, it's a really interesting thing that I've personally experienced where um, neighborhoods object to um, 
like a new uh, construction project that they don't want in their neighborhood. Um, so they know that it has to be built, but they don't want it in their neighborhood. And so there's a lot of uh, rallying or objection to things um, within certain specific neighborhoods. And that's the kind of definition of NIMBYism. Um, so simple constructing, constructing more housing, it seems like it would be uh, kind of an obvious solution to the housing shortage, but it's really complex and difficult to achieve. Um, housing is extraordinarily expensive, <laughs> as you can, as you well know, living in this greater Boston area. And um, it's been this way for many years. And we see it getting more extreme. And uh, we're kind of you know, we worry about this. Harvard University has a whole research center that is um, a, a kind of a convergence of the Harvard Kennedy School for Policy, Public Policy, and the Graduate uh, School of Design. And they their research center looks at policy and design and tries to figure out ways to really address this concern of the housing shortage. Um, and that's a really interesting center that uh, puts out reports and things like that. Um, but anyways, um, the prices and rents soared even further out of control, especially in the past year. The uh, increase in interest rates uh, reduced buyers in the housing market and um, it exponentially increased the rental market and the affordability and cost for rentals. Um, so even as we experience an economic downturn, um, as many economists expect, it is uh, not projected to provide relief. Um, so, uh, so it starts with record home prices. This is, I thought, pretty interesting to kind of put some statistics in here. Uh, the U.S. median existing home price jumped by over 18% in 2021 alone, which is the largest increase on record going back to the early 1950s, and then um, tacked on a further 15% through the mid to 2022 year, um, combined with rapidly rising mortgage rates, housing afford affordability has fallen to its lowest level in over 30 years relative to incomes. And this is um, for the National Association of Realtors. Um, so each, I should just add in a note here that the NAR um, and the Mass Association of Realtors and Greater Boston Real Estate Board, there's economists on each one of these boards who uh, puts out publications and a lot of research goes into these metrics and looking at housing affordability. Um, so I read a lot of that data. Um, so but uh, the fundamental issue is the overall chronic undersupply of housing, especially at affordable price points. Um, the challenges are hardly new. So there's a lot of restrictive zoning and building codes that have blocked new supply. Um, I mentioned NIMBYism, which is like people rallying to resist kind of like larger multifamily housing projects being built in their neighborhoods. Um, and then there's even like, curb approvals on projects that are existing. So all of this has transformed into this housing shortage. Uh, affordable housing developers complain that increasing complex deals now require more underwriting from more capital sources. And one developer, I kind of 
used to quote the average yield for us to take 90 days to close now is over six months. So the um, the time factor, obviously time equals money when you're a developer. And so to double, you know, from three months to six months, it's just a larger carrying cost for developers, which is quite extensive. It's like doubling the carrying costs. Um, so some experts we interviewed believe that the rise of the single family rentals, SR, SFRs are kind of a new thing that's going on. Um, there's been a lot of investment money by BlackRock um, and other major investment entities, and they are starting to invest in single family rentals. And what I we've actually experienced in Cambridge is that the individual homeowner cannot compete against this institutional capital that's coming up, that's coming out in the market. So institutional capital is driving up the prices in the resale market. And they're just coming in and buying single family houses and then turning them into rentals. So that's what we would describe as a disruptor. And that's been a kind of unbelievable thing that we've seen in the market as well. They're just outbidding owner occupants. Um, so all of these factors are conspiring to limit housing construction far below population growth. So that's kind of one of the major tension points. Um, in fact, the number of single family housing starts in the last decade relative to the household formations was the lowest since the government began tracking these trends and half as much um, or less during the preceding decades, um, despite the increase, um, the consistent increase in deliveries since bottoming out in 2010. So now both permits and housing starts have been trending downward again in 2022, which creates, as you can ima imagine, a lower inventory market, which drives up prices. Um, so, and then there's also, as you can imagine, this plunging home builder confidence, which suggests that the decline will likely continue until the interest rate environment turns more favorable. Um, and the ho homes that do get built are very expensive, particularly since the pandemic, when the construction costs shot up due to the supply chain dis disruptions. Um, and all of this is pretty worrisome for the housing industry. Um, there's a lot of, and I used to quote, there's a stress index about global supply chains. And those um, stress indices are all indicating that um, even though they're moderating, they're still at very high levels. Um, I put a chart in here that gives you a visual example of what's going on with the housing starts. Um, and they're kind of dropping off in 2022. So if you look at the last decade when it was bottoming out in 2009 and 10, we're starting to uh, go down again, which is worrisome. Housing starts are really a key indicator of the economy, um, and they're a very big measure of growth. So um, when the housing starts start to go down, you know, we are concerned about a recession. And conversely, when the housing starts are going up, we can expect like a lot of activity in the economy. So, um, so this is the uh, fourth area that we think a lot about is this kind of finding a higher purpose and repurposing existing structures. Um, so a long-term demographic trend 
and more recent structural demand uh, shifts have rendered countless existing building and properties either redundant or obsolete. Uh, many of these buildings may ultimately need to be repurposed or upgraded to meet new market requirements as well as zoning requirements as well. Um, so key repositioning targets are concentrated among retail office and older industrial structures and sites. Um, promising opportunities include residential units and newer or better located industrial stock, as well as opportunities, opportunities to retrofit for the future. Uh, we have much retail space and too many office buildings and not enough residential units or modern industrial space. That is the inescapable conclusion from many of our discussions with leaders across the industry. As summarized in the preceding pages, there's also not enough de developable land on which to build all the housing and warehouses uh, were needed. So we feel like there's something here, you know, where we hope there can be uh, kind of a, a happy overlap. Um, however, there's complexity to this idea. Um, so there's the life of great American cities, Mary, uh, sort of in that Jane Jacobs, uh, there's like this urban planning classic book that she uh, published in 1961, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which thinks and talks about um, the importance of older buildings and how you really create a neighborhood. And so in that book, she thinks about critical ingredients for a diverse, vibrant city. Um, one rule is that um, the district must mingle buildings that vary in age and condition, including a great proportion of old buildings. And why the need for older buildings? Why not all new? Well, I kind of think about that a little bit here. If a city area has only new buildings, the enterprises that can exist there are automatically limited to those that can support the high cost of new construction. So how boring and monotonous the world would be. She is really thinking about like small local businesses that occupy these older structures and give neighborhood its diversity and vitality. So there's a kind of crucial observation regarding the importance of older buildings and how to bring new life and different uses to their original function. Um, and she looks at like these old port cities like Boston or Montreal or Portland, Maine, where you walk around. If you've ever been to Portland, Maine, there's incredible um, former warehouses in this old historic district that have been turned into a really vibrant um, like port city. Like it, it's very beautiful to walk down there. Newburyport is another one where if you visit Newburyport, there's all these beautiful brick warehouse buildings that have been turned into like restaurants and retail spaces. And it creates this very hip vibe um, where people love this because it's kind of like a, you know, a very interesting mix of upscale hotels and restaurants and retail spaces. And so um, she's commenting on the fact that this is a really important ingredient to forming for to neighborhood formation. Um, conversely, oh, so, sorry, conversions are hardly limited to old warehouse districts. Every vibrant downtown is filled with buildings of varying types and vintages that have been converted to into new uses. Often the conversions go upstream as lower value land uses like warehouses and convert into higher value spaces, but the direction is often reversed with 
older offices converting into artist spaces and storage. Um, demographic trends and structural demand shifts magnified by the pandemic have rendered countless existing buildings either redundant um, or obsolete. So this is a really interesting thing that people are thinking and talking about right now. Um, is it possible to repurpose some of these spaces? How would we upgrade them to meet new market standards and zoning standards, which have shifted dramatically since the warehouses or these buildings were originally constructed? So there's a big uh, conversation going on between how would you repurpose them and how would you meet new zoning regulations? Um, so Donna, I, I have a question. Are you seeing this mostly in urban areas or are you seeing it in suburbs as well? Um, I, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I would say both. Okay. Yeah, both urban and suburban areas. And a large, actually, in thinking about the suburban areas, and this has to do with e-commerce, you may have, I'm sure you're aware of this kind of the malls that have gone on, like the, the malls, which were, you know, some of, people are concerned in the commercial real estate industry about malls becoming obsolete, or a lot of that, uh, a lot of those structures becoming obsolete and how to repurpose them. Um, even in East Cambridge, there was the Galleria Mall, which has really shifted to predominantly office space and very little retail. So there, there's a lot of uh, thinking about how do we do this? So in, in both areas, I would say. Um, so repurposing excessive retail use and improving mixed use, mixed use kind of like combining residential hospitality and office. And this is where um, I think uh, a lot, this is really getting into the design industry and a lot of like designers and architects thinking about this with the public policy people scrapping old buildings to create develop, uh, development land where conversion is not feasible is another thing that people are thinking about to create you know we we have so you know a dense, such density there's just not a lot of land available so people are thinking about that as well um but whether a full-scale conversion to another land use or more limited retrofit to higher building standards um, there's a compelling sustainability reason behind all this where um, the greenest building is the one that has already been built. Um, so simply for more sustainable, you know, and thinking about the planet and climate change, that's something that people are concerned about. We don't really love the idea of, you know, demolition and all of the, the landfill issues around demolition. Um, so moving forward, this morning I was telling Andrea this morning, I was reading the Financial Times and I had to pull this little quote out of it to add to the, the uh, uh, presentation as it, I found it very salient. Um, so it says, turning offices into condos in New York, a growing roster of New York City's office towers are being rendered obsolete by remote working. Uh, for city officials, converting them to residential building is a lemons to lemonade way to chip away at a chronic housing shortage shortage, but there are many reasons why conversions have been such a, a rarity and why most developers have found easier ways to make money. And I thought this is an exact encapsulation <laughs> of what I'm thinking about or what the industry is thinking about, um, because we're kind of presented with this uh, 
you know, complex complexity here, right? We need more housing. Uh, the pandemic created all of this, you know, remote working, and now we have these buildings that we don't know what to do with. However, developers, that's this is kind of a like I feel like this is where policy comes in, where uh, governmental officials have to really make it attractive to developers to retrofit these buildings. And I feel like without policy coming in to help with incentives or tax write-offs, developers are going to find easier ways to make money. And they're not going to kind of tackle these big issues with how can I convert an existing building to, you know, a multifamily housing uh, building. So this is a really interesting thing that's going on. And I feel like at the state and federal um, governmental, uh, you know, uh, entities, we're going to have to have them come in and help create uh, more incentives for developers. And then there's this climate change uh, segment that is a major, major discussion in the commercial real estate industry, as well as um, the residential industry. Um, but with the commercial real estate sector, um, it's it has played an important role in sort of mitigating climate change um, with climate risk growing, the real estate industry is has to be proactive in addressing the impacts of climate change on assets. As of 2021, spending on housing services was about 2.8 trillion, accounting for 11.9% of the gross domestic product. So taken together, spending within the housing market accounted for 16.7% of um, the GDP in 2021. We in the industry um, there's data that's been recently released that said that the built environment and the uh, commercial real estate industry is responsible uh, for 40% of um, greenhouse gases. And so within the industry, we're really concerned with climate change and how people can begin to really think about ways to create more sustainable buildings. Um, so climate change may alter the dynamics of where people want to live and invest uh, in terms of, you know, kind of drought areas where there's drought, areas where there's fire um, in the in the either the Southwest where there's drought or the West where there's a lot of, you know, increase of fire. So these things are becoming kind of like uh, we call it climate migration in the industry. Um, so in addition to the discomfort and health risks of living in even hotter climates, energy costs rise with the temperatures as do the risks of power outages as far more strain is put on power grids. Extended, sorry, extended drought conditions may limit new development because authorities may limit new um, hookups. The earth is getting hotter as we know. The latest global climate report from the and OAA has found that July 2022 marked the uh, 456 consecutive month with temperatures above the 20, 20th century average, and the five warmest days in July on record have occurred since 2016. As a result, extreme weather and climate events are becoming more frequent, as we know. Um, the National Centers for Environmental Information calculates that the annual number of billion dollar events in the US has been increasing rapidly in recent decades, um, rising from about three per year in the 1980s to over 20 
per year in the 2020s. Um, and some of the most upsetting or disturbing stuff is that the increase in severe storm, so summer storms and um, climate events like drought, flooding and wildfires. Um, just in the recent summer of 2022, we experienced five once in a 1000 year storms in Dallas, Death Valley, Illinois, Kentucky and St. Louis, which um, have recorded the most intensive rainfall in the city's history. And so kind of what this does to cities with poor infrastructures, uh, kind of uh, something we're thinking about. And then and then another, you know, kind of concern is like when you go to rebuild, you know, what are the new standards for rebuilding? So uh, these are kind of a lot of the discussion points. Um, the built environment intensifies climate change as builders and road absorb and retain heat. So there's something called the heat island effect. Um, that raises not only daytime peaks, but also especially nighttime temperatures, which can be hazardous to humans. Um, if these, uh, their heat island effect is in like certain zones, like there's one, there's a heat island effect in East Boston actually, which is something that the Urban Land Institute studied extensively a couple of years ago and um, published a whole report about the heat island effect in East Boston. Um, despite recent calls by some um, commercial real estate leaders that we should um, de-emphasize ESG and ESG is a movement within the real estate industry um, called environmental societal governance where we start to think about how to bring these things together um, to grapple with uh, growing you know issues around climate change um, but even as some leaders um, want to now grapple with growing economic threats many in the industry are continuing to answer society's call to do even more to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, with climate risk climbing still further this year, we highlighted climate's impact on um, real property and how the industry can proactively address some of these concerns. Um, I wanted to include this. This is a really exciting project that is happening in Boston right now. Um, this is uh, called Winthrop Center. It's a, a new era of living and wellness by design. I am so excited by this. Um, it's slated for delivery in spring of 2023. I included this because um, two years ago, there was a presentation um, by the main team of architects and designers doing Winthrop Center for the Urban Land Institute. And I have goosebumps talking about this because the people who are leading this are, it's a team of women and they are completely amazing. Uh, a, a group of women architects and designers um, who are leading this initiative. Um, it's This is a 30 year project in the making. Um, the Millennium Collection who built Millennium Tower it, are the owners of Winthrop Center. It's a 691 foot tall mixed use tower in Boston. It's, but the reason why I'm so excited about it, it's really setting a new global standard for integrated health and wellness, sustainability and technology in building design. It's so amazing. Um, it has won a lot of awards because it's modeling the most energy efficient solution um, for large scale buildings and uh, passive house office buildings. It's one like passive house, which is a very, very uh, rigorous international 
um, code that you have to abide by to win a passive house um, designation. It's won um, LE, um, ED Platinum Awards, which is the highest level lead award and also well um, gold certification. Um, it's eco-friendly. Uh, they are going for like a zero use um, in terms of output and climate change, um, kind of a, a zero footprint is what I'm saying. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting about it, it's it's a, like a hub. So for wellness, um, there's kind of mind-body nutrition services. There's a multi-floor multi um, community gathering space. I, I, I kind of included one slide from their website, but I would highly encourage you to visit their website. And I think they're going to start to have um, visits to the actual project this spring. Um, this is just sort of, I wanted to include one example. So this whole project was constructed with, uh, in collaboration with MIT um, and law, MIT School of Architecture, MIT Center for Real Estate and Urban Planning, and also uh, the Media Lab at MIT were um, kind of the research behind all of those departments uh, directly informed uh, the kind of thinking behind Winthrop Center. Um, so it is just kind of, it's a cutting edge uh, project in the world. And a lot of world leaders are looking at this as a reference point about thinking for the future. And I'm really proud of it because I feel like Boston with Harvard and MIT and the level of research going on should be a world leader for kind of these issues of climate change and how to address them. The other part of um, Winthrop Center that I think is really interesting is that it's a hub. So it's like there's public dining space, there's a space for concerts, performances. It's a really big, in this photo from their website, um, you can see that they really want to also be a hub for the neighborhood and for like um, the people of Boston. So it's a very interesting project going on. And I'm really thrilled to see that it was led by a team of women. So um, uh, the second part is I just wanted to kind of do a greater Boston year in review with market highlights. Um, so uh, just to, cause, this is kind of interesting about our area here. And uh, we would say Greater Boston did not have a particularly active residential real estate year last year, or at least by not local standard. Nonetheless, because of low inventory related to this uh, housing supply issue that's going on, uh, most communities continue to hold their value and even appreciate in many cases, which we found to be kind of amazing. Um, and I have to say the uh, company that I work with, Compass, uh, we're a national, um, Compass is a national, uh, we're like in many, if not all of the markets across the US. And I would say a lot of our affiliate offices in um, San Francisco and, and New York and Chicago look at Boston as an anomaly. Um, they're very fascinated by the fact that our housing, uh, residential housing, has really maintained and appreciated in many cases 
and did not dip in value. So um, it's quite an interesting place to be right now. Um, each quarter of 2022 saw a year over year decline in sales and the number of sales with a dramatic 28% dip among single family ho homes in the fourth quarter. Each quarter also saw a year over year rise in the median price with a peak of 725,000 in the second quarter, 10% higher than Q2 in 2021. Um, but thereafter, kind of in uh, May and June, a deceleration trend kicked in with the interest rates. And so uh, it kind of dropped from there. Um, over the course of the year, months of supply grew for single families and condos alike, which is great. Um, it started uh, picking up in the fourth quarter. Um, meanwhile, absor absorption rates, uh, which is how we measure, we measure how quickly buyers are snapping up properties in a particular market, shrunk for both single families and condos. Of particular note, uh, months of supply for the single family market was up 114% year over year by the end of 2022. Um, in comparing 2022 with 2021, single family home sales shrunk 16% and condo sales fell by 22%. Um, average prices of single family and condos were up 9% and 8% respectively. Median prices also climbed for single families and condos 8% and 7% respectively. So this is really fascinating to people in other areas of the country as well as to us, but it's really because our economy in um, Boston is very unique. Um, so what can buyers expect and sellers expect in 2023? Um, the housing experts are predicting prices will do anything but stay flat um, to rise slightly in 2023. The great unknown and the biggest conversation going on is the state of the interest rate. Interest rates, um, the Mortgage Brokers Association uh, the National Association of Realtors, Chief Economist Lawrence Kuhn and, and Realtor.com are among the industry authorities who, who foresee that mortgage rates will fall in the second half of 2023. The MBA most recently projected a year-end rate of 5.4%. Uh, Yun uh, places figure at 5.5. Um, it's safe to say that a return to rates in the 3% range is unlikely to occur anytime soon, at least not in the short term. Um, buyers will have to continue ex exploring various financing programs to help cut mortgages. Um, we've done a lot of strategic things with sellers, and uh, even some sellers are buying down points as a way to incentivize buyers as well. Um, a drop in interest rates would likely lead to the price increases this year, but with many experts predicting 2024 will be an even stronger market. Uh, 2023 could still provide solid investment opportunities for buyers despite the relatively high mortgage rates. Um, more immediately, buyers who couldn't compete in the 2022 market may have a shot now. We're really encouraging buyers who couldn't get into the market to really take advantage of this year um, as a, um, a uh, as so this is a correction. This year is a normalization or a correction. And we feel like this is the time to really get into the market because when rates uh, start to, uh, the Fed start to cut rates and we believe it'll be the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024, the market is gonna really get extremely busy again. Um, as buyers grapple with various affordability issues, the sellers can expect homes will take longer to sell. 
pricing correctly will be even more crucial than usual. Sellers should brace themselves for the return of contingencies and home inspections. In fact, this morning I read, this is funny, um, in the Wall Street Journal, that 88% of home sales in January had um, home inspection contingencies. So that's really, that's, that's definitely what's going on right now. The current debate, um, Fed officials are trying to balance the risk of raising rates um, too much with the risk of not doing enough to slow down spending and investment, which would allow higher inflation to become entrenched. Uh, the officials have signaled they don't expect to cut rates this year. Economists disagree. 51% expect, this, oh, by the way, this is from the Wall Street Journal. 51% um, expect the Fed to start cutting rates this year, although that is down from 16, 60% in the last survey. The Feds will start cutting rates um, in the fourth quarter this year, according to 31% of economists. Another another 37 expect that in the first quarter of 24 and 8% expect in the second quarter of the next year. The uh, Wall Street Journal surveyed 71 economists, um, although not every economist answered the question. I put a graph here uh, from the Wall Street Journal. So when do you expect the Federal Reserve to reverse course and make its next rate cut? So there's this kind of 31% um, and Q4 of 23 and 37 uh, percent believe it will Q, Q1 of 2024. These are just some market reflections of what's going on. Um, this is by the MAR or the Mass Association of Realtors. If you look, this is for Middlesex County. Um, this index sort of looks at the uh, inventory of homes. If you look down, um, so you can see in December of 2022, the inventory of homes started to increase um year over year by eight percent which is exciting for us um and then for condos um the inventory of homes uh, was just up two percent uh so this is sort of a graph of uh, the median sales price for single family properties um in middlesex county um and then for all of mls and then uh for condos and this reflects the fact that um, even with the uh, kind of like low inventory and the interest rate reduction, we see the median sales price continue to increase and even appreciate. Um, so let me just, uh, the pending sales as of January, 2023, and this is by the Mass Association of Real Realtors um, in greater Boston, um, pending sales are up um, from year over year from um, 511 in January 2022 um, to 635. So there's a 24% uh, increase, um, which is which is great. And so we're starting to see activity in the market. I put this in there. So uh, I think with the leveling off of the interest rates in December, people feel like um, the market is starting to get a little bit busy again. Um, and greater Boston condo sales are up 4.7%. Um, this gives you kind of a graph year, um, sort of like of the uh, one year price growth. Uh, so if you look at, um, if you look at the, this is actually kind of amazing. Um, so a one year appreciation 
um, for Boston is at 6.2%. And uh, for the US, it's at 8.6. And so a three-year appreciation is 37%. But if you go down and look at a nine-year appreciation in greater Boston, it's $305,000. And for the US, it's 184. So Boston is just kind of an amazing economic uh, microclimate. Uh, benefits of ownership. Um, if you look at appreciation um, uh, for the nine year, if you look at 36 quarters of appreciation, it for Boston, it's 368,000. And for the US, it's 217. So um, this is kind of discussing the benefits of ownership and total equity appreciation. Uh, the drivers of local supply and demand. Um, we're kind of just looking at sort of like employment and how employment has held up. Um, and Boston has done um, extremely well. Uh, if you look at um, a 12 month change um, in Massachusetts at 9.5% of growth and, and the um, US economy, it's 4.9%. So job growth is one thing that a lot of economists look at as a kind of driver for housing. This I love, this is sort of a share of the total employment by industry. Sort of if you look in the um, greater Boston area, you're looking at some of the key drivers uh, for employment, which is education and health services, uh, professional and business services, and kind of like, sort of like where, you know, sort of what is the economic engine and the key uh, drivers of growth in the uh, Boston market. And then um, this is where I pulled my resources from just to sort of give you the um, kind of associations and the economists who really look at the housing industry. Urban Land Institute is a international organization that looks at the built environment, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Greater Boston Real Estate Board, Nas National Association of Realtors and the Mass Association of Realtors. And um, that's the presentation. So if you have any questions, I'm happy to um, look at questions or anything that you would like to um, uh, ask about. I'm happy to kind of like think about with you or if um, I'm happy to send a PDF of the presentation as well. Donna, this was great. It was you provided a lot of information. Um, you're obviously very knowledgeable about what's going on. I think that, um, you know, when I think about some of the clients here that we work with, um, some of them are in a position where they need to downsize at some point. They haven't quite gotten their act together to do it. Mm -hmm. Other people are, you know, their children or people are looking to buy a home for the first time. How, with all of these, you know, trends and things and the data that you went through um, in the greater Boston area, what are some things that people, you know, are, would be helpful kind of to think about? Um, it's a great question. So in this environment right now, what we see is that the people who purchase at the lower interest rate, those historic low interest rates are frozen. 
because they, even though they might want to level up and buy a larger environment because now everybody's working from home, they actually can't because, right, if they buy into, if they're buying now, they're going to be buying at in the fives in terms of their interest rates versus when they purchase, it might be in the twos or threes. So the people who actually are very active in the market are first-time home buyers and people who are downsizing. Um, so those two or people who are relocating. And so um, people who fall into those demographic profiles, this is an incredible time to negotiate. A lot of sellers are um, kind of in a much more negotiating position than they were previously for 10 years. And I feel like if you are downsizing, this is an incredible environment. Or if you're trying to get into the market, it's an incredible environment. The people who are really frozen are the people who purchased at a low interest rate and want to do it more uh, unilateral move. They can't actually do that. So they're stuck. But um, I would say negotiation is um, one of the main things that's happening right now with the sellers who have been sellers who have been kind of in a uh, it's been a seller's market since 2010. And this is the first time we have seen a buyer being able to come in and really drive it in a way that hasn't been a possibility in the past. So I would say um, for people who are buyers and want to get into the market in those ways, this is kind of a very interesting moment in time that we feel will go through 2020 for the spring of, or the, I would say for from a year from now, it's um, this normalization period is a, is a great moment. So um, in the, I think also um, sellers are, a lot of people who are selling now have to sell. And so they're eager to sell. Um, and I feel like there's, I see amazing negotiations going on between the price point, but also uh, sellers buying down points on the mortgage rates. Um, so they get a lower interest rate as well as um, the contingencies, uh, all sorts of, all sorts of creative things are going on now. It's, it's kind of an exciting time if you like to negotiate in the market. Please reach out with any questions. You can email me at any time and I'm always happy to help answer questions, advise on any real estate related matters. <laughs> and um, happy Valentine's Day. Yes, happy <laughs> Valentine's Day so to you and everyone on the call. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I really appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> thank you so much, Donna. You're welcome. Okay. So everyone have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To listen to past podcast episodes and to see our calendar of upcoming events, visit our website, empower-women.com. We also invite you to join us on March 14th for our next Empower Women event, College Planning for Students with Learning Differences. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. 
This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity-specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult with their tax or legal advisor for related questions.